I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. We're about to complete a great quest. The Holy Grail, Dr. Jones. Oh, rats. <laughs> this is it. Look, the shield is the second marker. We found it. Indiana Jones is on the quest of a lifetime. But for some adventures, one Jones is not enough. Dad? Junior? Don't call me that, please. Follow me! I know the way! A race across three continents. And in this sort of race, there's no silver medal for finishing second. Into the homeland of the enemy. Nazis. I hate these guys. Our situation has not improved. It is search for the Holy Grail. How dare you kiss me? Are you crazy? Don't go between them! Go between them! Are you crazy? Where's my father? In the belly of that steel beast. Dad! Junior! You call this archaeology? The quest for the grail is not archaeology. It's a race against evil. Germany has declared war on the Jones boys. Those people are trying to kill us. I know, Dad! It's a new experience for me happens to me all the time. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Have the adventure of your life, keeping up with the Joneses. We are back with the third indie film, an extremely strong entry to the series, definitely the most personal, and as a result, a lot of people's favourite, including mine. Though our recent talk on the sheer entertainment value and old-school technical magnificence of Raiders puts these two the depth of a shadow apart. And we have two guests for you tonight, from Talkbuster, Shooting the Shit, and the Tangent Brothers podcast, as well as our Spielberg shows on Jaws, E.T., Poltergeist, and Temple of Doom, Mr. Chris Chipman is back. Hello, Chris. Thank you very much for having me back. I'm uh, addicted to being on this show. <laughs> And for the first time talking about Indy on our show, it's a regular guest from our Star Wars episodes dating all the way back to 2010, and the man who's pretty much helped me to define the sound of Gonzo shows, Mr. James Batchelor of Bond and Beyond. Hello, James. Hello. I've really been looking forward to this one. Yeah, I know. Now, if you look at the production of the original indie trilogy, there was quite a gap between the first and the third. Raiders coming in 81, Temple coming three years later in 84, and Crusade coming five years after that in 89, giving it a total span of eight years from beginning to end. Enough time for a young audience to grow, or a more mature audience to start getting reflective. And we'll talk, obviously, about the span of years between films three and four when we get to four. And while Temple was a deliberate step away from Raiders, Crusade was a deliberate step back into many of the story components and qualities of the original. 
The Nazis have returned like it's 2016, and they're after one of the most sacred religious artifacts in the history of the Abrahamic faiths, and Indy has to get there first. Gone is the child's sidekick and complaining heroine who doesn't want to be there, and instead there's a capable woman who seems just as interested in the quest, though of course we know with hindsight a bit more about her. Sulla is back. Marcus Brody is back. Marshall College in Bedford, Connecticut, where Professor Henry Jones Jr. teaches, is back, bringing with it a sense of the real world that was separate from Indy's adventuring. Riding on a horse after Nazi-driven hardware is back, along with those very involved physical stunts. The tone returns mostly to the seriousness of Raiders, adding a little bit more back-and-forth bickering comedy and a smidgen more physical humour. The unbalanced darkness clumsily aimed at children and almost all of the colonial racism and sleaze are gone, though some still remains. Traps are back, as is the villain getting exactly what they wanted and greatly regretting that, although all of the Indiana Jones films share this hallmark. But rather than Indy rekindling his old romance with Marion, here he's reconnecting with his father, and if you do some checking up, you can ascertain a few things. Henry Jones Jr. was born in 1899. He was 13 when his mother, Anna Mary Jones, died, the same year that we meet him as a boy in the prologue played by astonishingly talented and too soon departed young actor River Phoenix. He and his father did not get along during Indy's teens, and around college time Indy left and never came back or spoke to his father again. They both shared a fascination with history, though Henry Sr. fixated on the mythology of the Holy Grail. It's kind of baffling that Indy never says during this film, A couple of years ago I found the Ark of the Covenant. It was full of lightning, fire, paragod. Blew the heads off some Nazis though he may have gotten a shrug in response and told, if it wasn't the Grail, who cares? But the fact that Indy himself fixated on the notion that recovered artifacts belong in a museum, with his particular one that got away being the Cross of Coronado, which he manages to get back here 26 years later, that got me thinking, why does Indy want things in museums? Is it because they remain static and not lost? is the fact that his mother died that year of an illness that took both father and son by surprise, leaving them estranged emotionally and eventually geographically, in some way linked with this drive to retrieve and catalogue these lost relics. Steven Spielberg himself said in the making of materials that the search for the grail ties in with this story because it's the search for the father. But if you read the symbolism of what the cup traditionally means, it is in fact the mother Two men searching the world for this cup, now finally united, and after a severe brush with mortality, they finally succeed in a way that feels like real ground has been made, and a bitter wound healed. So let's talk about the many strengths of this movie and work our way up to that fantastic ending. And we'll begin in Utah, 1912. But it, it, it would be almost impossible back then for Spielberg to go, right, let's do a bunch of young Indiana Jones movies now. Like, you know, Harrison's hanging up his uh, hat. He doesn't need to come back as Indy. Like, he's gone on those journeys. You know, maybe we'll do uh, young Indy. But it would almost be like doing, you know, the, the solo film, mm. doing a bunch of them in the 90s when Harrison Ford was still totally capable of playing Han Solo. It's, 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 it's almost like they couldn't and yet, that was such a great opportunity because young River Phoenix is 
fucking fantastic as young he Harrison Ford uh, in Indy here. It's um, it's more than just uh, an imitation. There's um, there's a performance in there, and he's really serious about the role. I love there's it. It's a great, um, it's a great representation of Phoenix's instincts yeah. for acting. And I think he mentioned in some of the behind the scenes interviews that he started to pick up some of Harrison Ford's. Uh, mannerisms from working with him on the Mosquito Coast. Ah, yes, yeah. So he brought some of that to it as well. They actually said um, in one of those making-ofs that Harrison had come to Spielberg when they were talking about who would play him because the way that this movie grew, it was very shortly before filming that like they were still editing and some sequences of the movie were even just not in the script. They were based on storyboards that Spielberg wrote like quickly, which I find fascinating. But Harrison had come and said, River Phoenix has to play me. Look, he looks just like I did at that age and brought in like a picture and showed it to him. Nice. And it's like, oh, all right, that's the he's and I worked with him on the Mosquito Coast and he has my mannerisms down. I love that they add the scene with the whip um, cut. Mm. to mimic Harrison Ford's actual chin scar, yeah, which I, I find that bit. fascinating. That whole section is... Because we're at a stage now where, like, you know, origin stories are spun out into hour-and-a-half, two-hour films. Mm-hmm. Um, or in the case of the Daniel Craig Bond films, like, three two-and-a-half, two-hour films. Like, you know, <laughs> let's, let's build and stretch out the origin. Here, it's like 10, 15 minutes, and it gives you absolutely everything you need about where this character comes from, why he chooses the image he's got, where the fear of snakes come from, where the whip and the scar comes from, establishes his um, relationship with his father, his uh, moral compass, his belief in, um, you know, things need to be in, on the museum. I love the, um, when he comes out of the cavern, he looks around for his scout trip and everyone's gone, and he's like, everyone's lost but me. That's how he sees the world. That's how Indy sees the world. Everybody's lost but me. It's just brilliant, and it's done in 15 minutes. You don't need to string it out over an origin film. And what's fantastic about it is it takes nothing away from what you've already seen, mm-hmm. um, which which is not something that George Lucas is very well known for. Um, <laughs> the minute he gets to revisit things, he has a tendency to try to fix and subvert things he's already done. Hell, the the second Temple of Doom does a lot of that work, unfortunately, as being a prequel. It does a lot of going, this character doesn't feel right anymore. And in this one, they manage to go, oh no, we're going to give you everything you need to give you more of this guy without really hurting anything we've any of the ground we've already covered. Mm. And I think that's amazing that they pulled that off. I love how uh, elegantly they get in this uh, unnamed aspirational figure that um, I think it doesn't actually tell you that the year is 1912 until after you've seen that the guy yeah. in the hat with the brown one of the jacket definitely isn't Indy and that is like Indy, Indiana and then it cuts to River Phoenix taking off his hat and just doing that kind of stern scowl uh, and it's like, oh my god, that's totally Indiana. I completely see that now. I always remember when I first watched it being properly thrown by the double fake. Because I first watched these when I was like, I, don't know, I must have, I was younger than 10. I was like kind of 9, 10 ish. This, this, for me, I came to Indiana Jones before Star Wars, before Bond. This is my first big movie love was Indiana Jones. Hmm. Me um, too. And. I remember being completely thrown. I was like, "Oh God, they've done an Indiana Jones film, but it's not—it's not the right guy. Like, what? What is this?" And then, yeah, like you said, like Indy, Indiana is like, "Oh, I see what they're doing." It's like, and that even now, like I'm—I know what's happening, but it—it—it it, it amazes me how long they leave it before they reveal it. 
And the guy playing false indie uh, Fedora does uh, Fedora uh, does kind of a Harrison Ford impression. Like he he mm. emulates the sort of the, the 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 tall figure that indie grows up to want to be, and he has kind of a, a grey moral compass, which suggests he is gonna steal these artifacts but he's also got like a little bit of uh, kindness for Indy himself so that kind of uh, reflects in Indy's uh, own sort of uh, personality later on it's uh, rather than it just being wow that guy's really cool and not questioning it he took that image and decided to kind of well if nothing else he has pushed himself as far away from what his father's like as possible Mm -hmm. he's gone I like whatever I have to get from this guy. Nope, I'm going to get it from this guy here, who I don't even know. Mm. I do wonder, actually, what you said about him taking that aspect of the uh, the this belongs in a museum. Is that because he's looking at this mercenary who? ultimately is acting legitimately he's been paid by somebody to go and find this cross and there's maybe an element in Indy's uh, narrative there of him telling himself well if somebody's going to be going after these pieces it might as well be me Mm. Mm. hence the everybody's lost but me thing like you know I've got this together and I guess I can and and he actually does manage to through this ridiculous chase scene where he falls into a pit of uh, uh, snakes and develops a lifelong phobia, understandably by the way (laughs) Um, uh, he he is actually sort of he's able to to get away, if he'd failed here completely um, it it might have stalled him, obviously uh, that that doesn't work as as a prequel but it shows you this as a development of him going, you know what, I could actually do... like, And there must have been an adrenaline thrill of being able to get away from that clean that he's been chasing ever since. Absolutely. Well, there's definitely an adrenaline thrill in, in going after the pieces that he experiences. But this does kind of tie in with how... I wouldn't necessarily say quickly, but how easily he gives up on the arc hmm. compared to Marcus there is a point where you can see on his face, uh, you know what, government gonna government. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. you know, I've I've got to walk away from this. Yeah, bureaucratic fools. Mm. But then I wonder if that is why in the next scene, not that I want to skip ahead, but the um, Portuguese coast mm-hmm. where he's like he's he's still determinedly chasing it yeah. because there's part of his like, well, I, I lost the ark. The ark went to the, in my opinion, the wrong people. I am not letting this one go. I've been going after this all my life. It went to the medium people. The wrong people got yeah. burned up. What, they put it in Cincinnati? <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> that's where that uh, warehouse is. Um, actually, you've got um, a musical thing for, for the next one. Before we move on too far from Young Indie, it is the, the Dunn and Duffy Circus track. So oh. I do, I do. I do. One, one last thing before we do um, the, the, the musical thing, if I may, just while we're on talking on Fedora. Go for it. I've always wanted to track this down, but I, I, there's no point. There is a German-only novel um, of an Indiana Jones adventure where he meets and finds Fedora, and they work together on a job. And oh man! But I cannot find it anywhere, and it's only in German. And yeah, but I I need to know what that story is. I'll just tease you with that, guys, and then uh, well, yeah, let's do some John Williams. <laughs> I've always referred to Fedora as Treat Williams Indiana Jones. <laughs> He is a bit, yeah. I love the fact that he gives Indy his hat. That's a that's a yeah. huge deal, especially if there's in the, the kind of in a cowboyish place. 
that you know a hat is of, is of uh, value and symbolic significance and you can believe if you wish that that's the same goddamn hat that he's been wearing for 26 years and that's why he's and, willing to risk having his hand lopped off by a falling concrete block in order to get it back mm-hmm. and it's, it's the endorsement like fedora fedora saying you know you lost today but that doesn't mean you have to like it kind of saying yeah what you did today keep doing it like go for it here's the hat you know have at it and it's it's kind of the origin story for the hat always coming back to him, complete yes. to where later on in this movie it basically takes like like nature and God to give him his hat back because it's gone and it just kind of blows back. <laughs> I love I love that moment. I love that it's like it's so cheesy and even like the little flute version of the Indiana Jones theme. So like it's it just wouldn't happen. But you don't care by that point because you are so far gone enjoying this adventure. It's like yeah, of course he's got his hat back. Let's continue. And I have gotten used to the uh, um, idea of an invisible Jehovah just following Indy along, going, okay, come on, this is a very important quest. Here's your hat back, get back on the horse. By and large, Indy is on Jehovah's side. Like He's, he's doing God's work, so <laughs> yeah. it's okay. Um, You're up so against yeah, the literal me- Nazis, son. Have your hat back. <laughs> the well, John- I, love, I love that this movie and Raiders are so grounded in reality while mm. still being so magical. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and that's the bit that allows you to suspend your disbelief is that, oh, no, there's literal gods in these movies. You know, you're like, oh, all right, I get it now. Yep. Dad! 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 Oh. It's important. Then wait. Count to 20. No, Dad, you listen Junior! One, two, three, four. In Greek. Ena, Leo... And by the way, how could you not memorize the three trials? We've memorized the three trials. He spent his whole life focusing on it. Why is he in the grill diary? Well, to be fair, Sean Connery is a lot older than we are. Yes, he has a different Sorry, kind Henry, of memory. Henry Jones, Henry Jones, Henry Jones Sr. is a lot older than we are. I put them in the grill diary so I wouldn't so, have to remember them. Also, he strikes me as being the kind of academic who's got through a lot of his career being the distracted genius type who nobody actually expects to remember anything. Yeah. You become a professor senior by remembering things. You lost today. Hat gets blown to living fuck and uh, he gets the cross of Coronado back, brings it back to Marcus, much like he tried with the idol, but he's actually succeeded this time. So it's like, look at me, I'm growing. And it also feels less like he's stealing from a people now because he stole it from people who stole. Mm. Ah, good point, yes. Yeah. Set that up early. Yeah. So technically, he, he stole it from grave robbers who were just sort of keeping hold of it and, and it's. It's it's Indy doesn't have much of an arc throughout his films, but you can track it from that first Raiders. I'm I'm taking this idol from these obviously pissed off native uh, people uh, to uh, by the end with the Grail here. Just I'm just going to leave it here because this is where it belongs. Like no longer it belongs in a museum. It belongs buried. It belongs goes, not in the world. Goes full circle with Crystal Skull, where he's returning an artifact. Indeed. 
right. <laughs> these movies, these movies do a pretty good job of after a while when Indy is stealing from someone, even if it's to help him get somewhere mm-hmm. that um or do something that is just completely like they're completely innocent, like the farmer in this film. Yeah, the car <laughs> gets demolished like five minutes later. Right, it gets them out of their situation, but it's like this isn't going to go easy for you because you shouldn't take in that guy's car. Yeah. Um, same thing with Salah with the camels. You know, that was my again. That car gets destroyed. <laughs> you know, like there's there's a uh, um, there's the movie is being moral for Indy yeah. because there is that pull from this guy at the beginning to be the antithesis of everything Indy's dad was. Yeah, and so he's stuck in between. And I love that just in that little 15 minutes we get at the beginning, it tells you almost everything you need to know about their relationship. Mm. So then the scenes they have together, they do more in what they don't say to each other than what they do. Mm. Um, yeah. And it's it's wonderful. that Like, that extra George Lucas, I need to have a prequel and a backstory thing works so damn well in this movie. Mm. I wonder if those little moral consequences, by the way, are an echo of the... India is technically on the side of God in that it's like, I'm a help you, but I'm a spank you if you nick people's car. <laughs> well, he didn't nick the car. He swapped it for a slightly damaged plane. Okay. Without any organisation or agreement. Yeah, but it was a Nazi plane. Yeah. Yes. Oh, true, actually. And it was damaged and couldn't be used. You can recover your car about a mile down the road. Hmm. Also, take whatever you like from the wreckage of the Messerschmitt. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. It also feels like God is throwing the Elsa character at him just to make up for uh, the entirety of how he treats Winnie in um, or Willie in uh, Temple of Doom. Because mm. <laughs> we'll damn. get to Elsa in a bit, but uh, yeah. Um, uh, so, so yeah, he's back at uh, college doing doing the teaching. It's a bit less sleazy because rather than the girls writing "love you" on their eyes, they're just all like everyone, male and female, are badgering him the moment he steps out of the classroom because they all want his attention. The first thing that happens when he gets out of college, and okay, I went back to Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I've been doing a lot of um, like personal fan edits, uh, um, uh, just 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 to see what I can do with films uh, recently. And I made an audio score only version of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it is phenomenal to watch. It's so much fun. But I noticed that after he gets away from the Hovidos. There is a huge gap of John Williams doing nothing until they open the book on the Ark of the Covenant, like near the end of the Washington Men sequence. This signifies that John Williams equates to adventure in these Indiana Jones films, so that the uh, college is the real world and normal, and there's no place for uh, John Williams' score. And it reminded me that in the original Back to the Future, Alan Silvestri doesn't play a note until about 25 minutes in when the DeLorean appears. That music is tied to the time travel adventure. Similarly, Indy's music is tied to him being Indiana Jones, not him being Professor Henry Jones. And yet, in here, in um, Last Crusade, when he gets away from this massive crowd desperate to get hold of him, 
John Williams plays a light little and he climbs out the window trying to just get away from this ordinary boring life which is annoying to him but yeah that's the signifier that's him crossing the threshold literally voluntarily desperate to get away from the reality world that he doesn't really want to be in to get back into the adventure world that he really does want to be in and I, I do wonder if a little element of that is again him sort of reinforcing this I don't want to be like my dad. He, When he's describing his father to Marcus, he's talking about this very dry academic, mm. the, the lecturer that nobody wants because nobody wants to have because he's boring, because all he talks about is the, the academic mm. side of things. That's who he really doesn't want to be. Yeah. It, it's interesting to see all of his colleagues that he has from academia and from his, you know, this is how I pay my bills life all seem to either have come from his father or are uh, in parallel with what what his father is. And then Sala and all of these other people that he always ends up back in, it, it's almost like a kid disappearing into a storybook world. Mm. Like, this is, where it be, this is where the story becomes, maybe I'm embellishing and maybe this is, you know, not as amazing as it went down, but this is the part that interests me. Mm. So that's why the music gets interested. This is one of the reasons why um, the scene between Marcus and Sala that comes later, I find absolutely hilarious because it's like these two worlds meet with Indy not present and they're like oil and water they don't mix hmm. mm. and it also goes to like Brody is the perfect uh, um, embodiment of how that academic real world does not fit in that adventure world like he's like because he even without Salah he is completely lost he's completely like fish out of water like you know does anyone understand a word I'm saying like mm. <laughs> just not ready for it like no one from that world except you know, Indiana Jones, you know, can cross from academia into adventure. That's the role of a hero. That's what a hero in mythology does. They they are the bridge between the world of the gods and the world of the humans, and they are the ones who make the connections between the two in order to resolve whatever tension is going on in the story. And I don't recall um, if in... Raiders or Temple, the Indiana Jones outfit had this particular addition to it. But in this movie, particularly when they get down into the catacombs, when he switches from, okay, I'm kind of dressing like a, you know, more of an intellectual, you know, professor role, he's still got a tie. Mm. When he goes to the Castle Brumwald, he's wearing a tie. Yeah. Which is. I um... always took that as, you know, like, okay, I need to look a little bit more put together for my father. Yeah. You know same. what I mean? Same, because that's the only time we've seen him on an adventure, but wearing like a smart tie with a smart knot and all that. Like, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it feels very, I, almost habitual. Like, you know, I, I need to be like, not even a conscious choice of like, no, I'm just, I'm going to put this on because it's, I'm seeing my father. It's just, it's what's expected. Harrison plays that so incredible where you don't realize the body language of, of an actor until you see him come through the window and his dad's there and his posture and he just looks like a child, sir. You know, yes, and sir. It's like, yeah. Wow, it's a like, reflex, isn't it? So much.
first off, there's this kind of, you know, well, appearances can be deceiving. Not in this case. Go with your gut feeling on this, that Donovan's men come to see him. Uh, John Williams plays, which is the exact same kind of watch out for these guys, they're Nazis type uh, um, uh, piece of music. And they, they get Dr. Jones not by greeting him, but by surrounding him. And he's just got like, there's this quiet sort of, huh, huh? scene and then it cuts to the party and it's like oh it's okay it's refined but it's like no no no, go back to that later after you've seen it that this was they and we extrapolated when we were watching it yesterday what must have happened regarding you know recruiting henry jones senior and then realizing uh, that uh, he'd sent he'd cottoned on to elsa and sent his uh, grail diary off and going right i guess we gotta get henry jones jr because um my guess would be that elsa would have uh, um uh, predicted correctly that it would be sent to him and, and she was right because it was uh, uh, in the mail but um, uh, he had it sent to the college didn't he rather than uh, the house which of mm. course got searched uh, but uh, but yeah the uh, Donovan as our uh, main hidden villain he has this like smarminess to him where like when you go when he turns up to be the sort of like turning around Blofeld style Bond villain it's like I knew there was something up with him <laughs> but at the same time he could just have been the guy who sends Indy off on his quest and then never takes any further uh, role in it um, one thing I loved one little detail was that he's got this party going on he's got this gorgeous well appointed uh, um, house with all of these like wonderful old artifacts and it's kind of a museum itself it's kind of the upper class end of what Indy is working towards. So, like, you know, a, a, a posh fellow who collects antiquities and probably buys them from museums and uh, markets in uh, yeah, one place you can sell it, Marrakesh. He pours Indy champagne and Indy barely drinks it and ends up using it to help illuminate the gravestone that uh, they're, they're, he's looking at, the engraving. He's like dipping his fingers into the glass, not the least bit interested in the fineries. He is mm. all about the adventure side of it. I love that as a detail. That's a good touch. Elsa Schneider, when we uh, get to um, uh, Venice. Now, she's our heroine and our secondary hidden villain. I noticed, by the way, that uh, Drew Strutzen did not put Donovan on the front cover. Um, on of the sorry on the uh, classical poster, you got those. It's a four corners um, a, a pillars, and you've got Sala and Brody and um, uh, Vogel or Vogel, Vogel. yes, uh, going Vogel. Yes. Cliff. Yeah, that actor played uh, old Grindelwald at the uh, in uh, Deathly Hallows, so he's kind of an old Nazi either way. Uh, and then you got Elsa on the left, but you know once you know that she's in fact a secret Nazi sympathizer, it's like the villains are down the bottom. But Donovan's nowhere to be seen, so that there would at least be some kind of revelation there. By the way, incredibly beautiful Drew Strutzen poster, and one of my most inspirational images. It's 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 the basis of the front cover for Secret Rooms. Um, oh, cool. <laughs> I've actually got a copy of that poster with, I think it's that poster, with uh, with my face photoshopped to replace Harrison Ford's. <laughs> I, it, was, I, it, was, it was a thing they were doing at Disney World. Like They were like, they doing loads of put yourself in a, in a movie poster. And it was all like Star Wars and Marvel and Marvels and Disney's and so forth. And they're like, you know, oh, you know, do you want one? I was like, nah, I'm more into, more into James Bond. Have you got anything about that? I was like, well, bear with me. And then obviously Sean Connery is a James Bond. I was like, there you go, Indiana Jones, James Bond. I was like, yeah, go on then. Here you go. Here's my money. Take my money. Smile. I can one-up that slightly. I was at Universal Studios and got my face put on Conan the Barbarian's body, but on a T-shirt. 
which I wore like an <laughs> idiot. <laughs> Age wow. 13, not a muscle on my body. <laughs> it was absurd. When other jaws be- ride, though, it's a good ride. Back to Elsa Schneider, sorry. Talking about <laughs> awesome experiences. Our heroine, our secondary hidden villain. Uh, she was based somewhat on Matahari, who was a uh, German spy in World War One, who eventually ended up executed by firing squad. There's a romance scene later on where she's like, how dare you kiss me? How does this feel? How does it compare to the other Indiana Jones romances? And how does it feel today? And I'm going to kind of defer to Sharon on this one because um, well, yeah, I mean, that's we, our taste maker. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about this a little bit last night. And honestly, this scene feels like it should be a lot more awkward and uncomfortable than I actually find it. So I think as far as heroes being somewhat blasé with their love interests Indy actually doesn't do too badly and I think his interactions with Elsa in this particular context are underlined quite firmly by the fact that she is as aggressive and up for it as he is if not more so albeit that once we know how her plot line turns out we can kind of assume that she this is all staged so that she can distract him from the fact that her room's been frisked and and you know she doesn't want him to suspect her in any way so this is a good way of deflecting his attention get him thinking about something else um but it's not this never felt to me like he was being gross and and overbearing with her particularly even given the age discrepancy because uh Alison Doody was very very young when she did this I think she was only about 21 there's a it's the bit when the when the argument's just starting and like she um I think she's like oh yes give a girl a flower and she'll follow you anywhere and she steps in and slams the door behind and he kind of notices like right she shut the door to make sure she's alone with me that is not necessarily a green light let's call that an amber light there's a possibility here. Like that's my reading of that of that section. Like it's it doesn't feel creepy because he sees it that she's already taken the first step. Mm. Hmm. There's a nice little bit of interplay when they're on the uh, Venice Pier where uh, he grabs her a flower and they're sort of going back and forth and it's like, may I steal you a flower? But I've already said because tomorrow it will have uh, wilted. Well, tomorrow I'll steal you another. And Marcus is like, if I may, like, you know, would, <laughs> would you two just shut Could up for just we a focus, moment, please? <laughs> It's and honestly, Alison Doody was up against it on this one. Same as um, similarly to how Kate Capshaw was in uh, Temple of Doom. There was a uh, one of the extras is a gathering together of all of the Indiana Jones, the, the women of Indiana Jones, uh, and it starts with. Um, Karen Allen talking with great warmth and fondness about Marion Ravenwood and how much she loved her character and uh, how she felt, uh, you know, that they they worked with it to make her not just a damsel in distress. And then they cut to poor Kate Capshaw, who is like sort of like biting her fingernails in front of this live audience going, well, I was obviously a different kind of lady and I was shrill and annoying and I wanted to do more. And um, I got I got it in the neck uh, for being um, not very feminist. 
And uh, then it cut to Alison Doody, and she was like, well, I turned out to be a Nazi. <laughs> and um, also I was furious that Sean Connery basically got the narrative meat of this story. He got to do, like, you expect Indy and Elsa to grow uh, closer, and then there's that turnabout. And it's almost a literal tag team where they switch out Elsa and put in uh, uh, Henry Senior. And all of the actual drama and growth that, uh, um, you know, that you got some of with Indy and Marion, you get a lot more here with uh, Henry. And Elsa kind of fades into the background for the second half of the film and is there. But because she's a Nazi, you don't really invest in her at all. She plays the femme fatale and to her credit, the very young Alison Doody manages to get quite a lot of complexity into just a few looks. Mm. Well, she's Mm. not... She's not a thin character. Mm. There are moments throughout this where they basically give her, or or she takes, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of this was what Alison Doody was putting into the role, little moments of mitigation for her the side that she's chosen to align herself with. So you get this little moment when they're at the book burning and she's stood watching them and her eyes are full of tears because she's ultimately... Uh, an academic she loves learning and she's seeing learning destroyed before her eyes and that's distressing to her not distressing enough for her to walk away from the nazis or do something about it but you know it's it at least says there is more to her than just she's in this for the money and they're helping her or worse she's in this for the ideology which Mm. is obviously never the case i felt like she realized at that point that she was in way over her head at that Mm. that stage that these people Mm. were going to fuck the entire world up and like a lot of people who fell in with the nazis she was too scared to oppose them um i i feel limited sympathy for someone uh who who would still support the nazis but it does make her give her a line and it makes her more than just a ha ha type uh sneering villain like uh, um uh, mola ram for example mm-hmm. is just evil incarnate he's like gleefully evil and tot mm-hmm. in uh, uh raid it's just this sadistic fuck i think one of the important reasons why she needs that complexity is that otherwise her end would be entirely predictable it would be like, okay, she's all bad. You know she's got to go down. Because there's that complexity, there's this question mark over whether or not she's going to get out of it. Kind of like Spalco. Yeah. And it builds up to it. Like Obviously, we, we go from the, the book burning where, where, as you say, like she's starting to show regret. She's really kind of upset by the, um, the actual burning. And there's that great kind of short interplay between her and Indy when she realises she's come back for the diary. Mm. Um, after that, she doesn't have many lines. She's sitting there almost like bored during the, um, the drive down through the desert. But it, I, I kind of now looking back on it, like she's sitting there kind of uh, pensively. She's sitting, thinking, reflecting, like how much does she want to be caught up in that? She's literally surrounded by the Nazi war machine marching across the desert to the holiest of sites. Mm. And she's just deep, deep in thought. And then when you can really see it hits her when they see... When Kazim dies, like, you can see it visibly affects her, which, you know, what, hour or so, you know, beforehand in the film, he tried to kill her, like, in the, the Venice boat chase. And, but she's really bothered by it. Like, these are righteous soldiers who are on the... who believe themselves on the side of God, and she's on the opposite side, and I think that really hits home for her. Mm-hmm. So when we eventually get to the end and she she's trying to, to get the grill... I have always read it as um, when... Uh, Donovan asks her to pick the grail she just purposefully picks the wrong one mm. because she doesn't even Completely give much agreed. thought she yeah. doesn't give much thought she's like 
it's this one and she gives Indy like an almost a knowing look and you can read that two ways you can read that of I'm going to give you the wrong one because I do not want you to get what you want or you can read it as like I'm going to give you the wrong one because I actually want to see what happens so that I don't pick the wrong one no, I, I, I think it is that she's just like, this guy can't have the grail. I want yeah. the grail for, for us. And I'm sure that me and Indy will be able to pick the right grail, but this guy needs to get out of the way. And guess what happens when, like, she doesn't expect exactly what happens because when it does, she's like, oh, holy shit. <laughs> yes. Um, but, like, it, it, it then builds, it means that by the time that she's picked up the grail and she's crossing the ceiling, it's like, it's yours, it's, it's ours, Indy, yours and mine. At that point, you fully believe, actually, no, she has completely cast off the whole Nazi side she's cast off the previous reason she is now just in it for the grail and she is on Indy's side if, if, if she even can be like you feel that that progression back to right now she is a heroine bordering on a heroine mm. and that's done with so few lines over the second half of the film because as you say she's barely in it for the second half of the film and she does a lot with, with looks line, doctor where is it? How did you get here? Where is it? I want it. You came back for the book? Why? My father didn't want it incinerated. Is that what you think of me? I believe in the Grail, not the Svastika. You stood up to be counted with the enemy of everything that the Grail stands for. Who gives a damn what you think? You do! All I have to do is squeeze. All I have to do is squeeze. And that made me think, oh, she actually does care about his judgment of her. Like, seemingly not many people know Elsa. She probably doesn't have many friends. Let's, let's read too much into this. But by the end, when she's like, it's ours, Indy, yours or mine, I actually believe, not necessarily that she wants the Grail for altruistic reasons, but she wants his approval. And she actually mm. does want him together with her. Like I said, with that whole I, I'm in over my head thing, maybe she feels like he could protect her. Oh, my life. Right, that makes a longer chain than I thought for something that I was going to talk about later. Okay. If Elsa is seeking Indy's approval. Indy is, is seeking, seeking Henry's, Henry's approval. approval. And Henry gets his approval from the knight who nice. supports them as they leave. Nice. Yes. Yep. I always liked the bit with Elsa where she comes down to talk to Indy and says, you know, the time we had together was nice, but Henry is answering her. And I always liked that scene, one, because comedically, I mean, Sean Connery's just, he's, he's spot on, right, mm. in these scenes. But it, it's an awesome play because that whole thing could be so gross. And yeah. instead, And instead it plays like, he earlier on is like immediately I know she's a Nazi she talks in her sleep yada 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 but he's never like accusatory or angry sounding about it so he still actually cares for the time they had even though he read her like a freaking book from the beginning mm-hmm. so even it's like the, she's not vile to him like the rest of them even at the end like he's quite sympathetic also when Elsha thought, never really believed in the grail she thought she'd found a prize there's no like <laughs> bitterness or aggression there there's no like well fucking she deserved to drop into a bottomless chasm right. of smoke mm-hmm. like it's literally just like he, he feels sorry for us like she she got yeah, like we've been saying she got in over her head she didn't understand what she was dealing with and she paid the price for it and that's a shame but without saying that yeah and um 
As you said, the uh, the bit where uh, uh, he said she talks in her sleep, he then gives this sheepish little grin, Love which as you said, I don't know how they circumvent this being creepy, especially as it's actually James Bond. And at the time, yep. James Bond had until really recently been Roger Moore, and this girl was in Future a Kill. Yes. She was one of the few girls, Jenny Flax, who he didn't actually bed. She was just like this girl with a horse or something or other. But uh, she was ridiculously young and apparently the youngest Bond girl, which means that she was younger than even the girl that uh, Roger Moore said, I'll buy you an ice cream. Younger than BB Doll. Okay. No. Um, I will say, though, she is she is 21, but she's playing a 29-year-old. Yeah. yeah. Where it, it works out a lot less gross than when you actually work back Marion's age yeah. in Raiders. Uh, we'll, uh, we will have uh, talked about uh, the whole uh, Marion thing when it comes to uh, Willie because people have been asking about that on Twitter. Why yes. didn't you talk about Marion's age? And it's like, it's because it's a dead end. But yeah, no, uh, the fact that Elsa's playing a 29-year-old, or Alison Doody's playing a 29-year-old, and was relatively new at the time, she gets an incredible amount of complexity and maturity into a uh, character that isn't given much room to explain herself. Let's mention the work of editor Michael Kahn, who uh, uh, did all of the uh, Indiana Jones films spectacularly well. I mean, imagine these films with poor editing and how it would almost have been like they wouldn't have got to even Temple. One thing I noticed is in seemingly all of them, yeah, every single, um, in, in Spielberg's words, Raiders movie has silhouettes on the wall. They're, yes. they're like a running feature. Like the um, uh, uh, when Indy first turns up at Marion's uh, place, you see the sort of the, the, the hat shadow on the wall. When the Nazis bust in on, in the uh, boat and find the Ark, you don't actually see them in the doorway. You see their silhouettes covering the Ark. Uh, in the um, tunnels, I think um, uh, Kazim and his Brotherhood, you see their silhouettes uh, and. Uh, I think you see thuggy silhouettes. Oh, yeah, that's it. When Indy strangles that guy with the ceiling fan, you just see his shadow. Yeah. They do the rat silhouettes when the fire gets lit. Very true. And yeah. in- because, because as Spielberg said, they, they made a bunch of mechanical rodents to torch. Mm-hmm. And so they needed to have a way of showing you that there's a lot of rats running. <laughs> And the shadow. The best shot in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is before you actually see Indy when he stands up in the silhouette and you can see him put on the hat from the ground. Yeah, the wonderful first half of that film. Yeah, Yeah. it's all downhill from there. And it's it's worth bearing in mind as well that while I don't believe for a second that the Indiana Jones series is the first one to use that incredibly strong uh, concept of if you can define your character by their silhouette, if people know who they are by the silhouette, um, then it it means that they are a clearly delineated character that people will recognize. The first example that everybody gives when they're talking about that concept is Indiana Jones. Yeah. Yes. It is also worth mentioning that uh, the uh, that Kazim and his uh, Brotherhood of the Cruciform Sword. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and guess that um, Stephen Summers was watching this film with his dad uh, and uh, was like, "Right, I'm just going to take that." And there we go, Ardeth Bay and the Magi in the Mummy films. <laughs> uh, that basically just like a, a sexier version of this. Yeah. So good. There's so much, I think we discussed this on the on the Mummy shows. Like there's so so much Indiana Jones in the Mummy films. Certainly the first two. While we're on Kazim, 
and the Brotherhood. Like I, I'm going to throw because we're still talking. Can we circle back to Venice? I've yeah, lost track of where sure, we are. Sure. It's okay. We can we can jump around on this Grail quest. We've uh, we've already gotten to various meaty sections, and uh, we can uh, we have the power of map travel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, gonna, yes. Gonna, we are traveling by, by map. map. <laughs> <laughs> going to uh, direct my, my red line straight back to Venice then um, two, two brief things one, one is that um, I only just tweaked on this viewing that when Indy enters the, the, tri- the, you know, the, the temple of the um, the temple of the grail and starts going up the stairs the lion statues either side of the passage that leads to the, the challenges are the lion statues from the church in Venice I had never picked up on that before you're yeah. right I don't know. Well, it's just, it's just the, the connection and like the idea of this, you know, this this mythology and this this the legend that stretches out. Less symbolic um, thing about Venice. They come out from the sewers. They climb up. Ah, Venice in the middle of a, a cafe scene. Hmm. Kazim and his fez-wearing friends run after them outside the um, temple. It suddenly cuts to an alleyway and they jump in the boats. That is not Venice. That is Tilbury Docks in Essex. <laughs> Because my dad worked there and was there the day that they were filming it. Oh, Obviously nice. from a distance, but yeah. Um, so now the trouble is, whenever I watch that boat chase, I can't, 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 um, can't just, you know, disassociate in my head. It's like that's ah, that's Tilbury. Amazing how um, those little pieces of information just interrupt your absorption in certain scenes. They really do. But <laughs> that, that, that chase is just that chase is just absolutely fantastic. Like it's 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 really well done. Like and it. it Builds the, the the whole escape from Venice builds the bond between Indian Elsa Elsa before before we get to the uh, the, the hotel room and the the um, seduction scene that we've already talked about. Like it kind of it's the typical kind of you know throw people into a life threatening situation and, you, and they can see who each other really are and like the fact that as much as she's not as anti damsel in distress as Marion was the fact that you know she's straight up the wheel and she's she's driving the um, the boat she's she's handling the the chase it's not him all the time like she shows herself to be competent in this kind of adventure world that he's in whereas you know complete again complete opposite to to willie scott i also love like the when um indy's onto kazim's boat and it's going towards the the propeller and she's like no and like you know now that you on second on first viewing you're like oh no she's really worried about indy because she's only just met him and you know he's he's you know, kind of warming, you know, growing on her. Now you watch back, it's like, no, if she loses him, well, the, you're all out of Joneses. You know? <laughs> that's that's <laughs> it, that's your, your Jones allocation for this movie. <laughs> that's your Jones is quota gone. spent. Absolutely. <laughs> the, um, there's also, I think, a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek element of them being in Venice at that point, because he meets Marion... You know, Tibet, not known as the most romantic spot in the world. Uh, He meets Willie. The context that he meets her initially is being chased by gangsters. Venice should be this incredibly romantic, Mm -hmm. here we go, this is the perfect opportunity for this relationship to develop. Uh, only she's a Nazi. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> and we and we had our first adventure in catacombs full of rats. Mm, yeah, um, absolutely. One day we'll Just, laugh about this with our kids. Well, while we're in Venice, the catacombs. So I was five when this movie came out, mm-hmm. and I saw it in real time on video when it came out on video. So I'm probably six. You know, my father was so excited to show us an Indiana Jones movie in real time because Temple of Doom came out. I think the month after I was born um, or or two. So um, I grew up with Temple and I grew up with Raiders. And so getting to see this one in real time was, oh, a new indie movie. The Catacombs, 
I've never been able till recent viewings of this been able to pick out details of what actually goes on in that scene because that shook my world so much when I was five years old. I didn't understand why would you have a sewer full of open casket dead bodies. It really messed my brain up because I grew up, you know, in their bodies get put in the ground. And, you know, I didn't even know about cremation at this point in my life. Right. So that really messed me up. But I love the little bit. And again, it ties back into how all of the um, the prequeling they do in this movie and all of the nods to the other films works so well in a way I've never really seen it work, you know, particularly with George Lucas involved before when they're in the catacombs and they do that. This is the Ark of the Covenant. Are you sure? Pretty sure. <laughs> and, 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 George is, and John plays a little da, 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 at that point. We love it. Every, Pretty every sure. Time. Love that moment. Oh, and we've we jumped over the bit with the uh, uh, the librarian with his stamp that a boom, boom, bang. <laughs> right. That's just killer. That's Seven a seven. great bit of physical. I've, I've no, been having this debate with my uh, my friend. So, um, mate of mine, mate, me and my best mate, we we love these films. We actually used to watch them when we were teenagers. We would actually have an almost annual Indiana Jones trilogy. We like we'd come and we'd go over to one of our houses. We'd watch the whole trilogy in one hit. Wow! Um, just every year, we just loved it. Six and a half we, hours of the Jones. Oh, it's just so good. We still can't decide. Is the librarian specifically meant to look like Albert Einstein? Yes, I think okay. he was. It's because uh, at the time uh, Albert was a Swiss patent clerk, and right. uh, uh, yes. they're, they're just kind of like it's a reference to someone like Einstein could have a job like a librarian in in this world. And so yeah, it's he almost certainly got cast because of his crazy Einstein hair, or maybe they put a wig on him. But uh, I love his little reaction, where he sort of eyes the thing, and kind of a, <laughs> what the hell is and then sort of puts it over slightly away from him and eyes it warily. It's like... one of the things I really love about this scene is that it's entirely on him they do not cut back to Indy hitting the slab mm-hmm. with the, with yes. the oh yeah it's his reaction they keep yeah. it focused so that you've got all of that him as you say him reacting to this largely irrelevant noise yeah it's one of those moments that for me like I haven't watched I have to say I haven't watched Raiders or Temple in, in about five years now I just haven't had time remedy that but, um, I know I lie I saw Raiders a couple of years ago I saw it at the Albert Hall like with a full orchestra that was oh, awesome wow but, um, but the, the Crusade really feels like it's it's really playing the moment, uh, moments for comedy in a way that neither of the other two do um, well the, just, the second Temple of Doom is trying to play moments for comedy it's just not funny yeah okay that's probably <laughs> yeah. fair point but like this, this one nails that comedy, and mm. it's just throughout the film, from moments like the Albert Einstein mm. to just Henry Jones, like the 10, 11, 12, 11 o'clock. Sorry, son. Are you crazy? Like, Don't go between them. Go between yeah. them. Are you crazy? Everything feels like it's played for laughs, but not in a way that detracts from the tension and the thrills of the film. Absolutely. Well, it makes it playful mm. instead of... it's not. It, it doesn't take on a silly or groan-inducing. It's like, no, there's a... There's a high fantasy thing going on here with what's going on that keeps you engaged. And it's moments of levity that actually work, and they're placed in places where you need them. Whereas Temple, which from a story standpoint feels so laser-focused on more of a childish sensibility, none of the humor or silliness works quite the way it does here. Actually, thinking about it, it reminds me of another Lucasfilm movie that came out much more recently to it than Temple, Willow, where they got, again, the comedy really well-balanced. 
And people should go listen to the episode on Willow that she did because that was fantastic. It's a good one, folks. Uh, okay, so uh, when uh, we we go to uh, the castle in Scotland and, and Harrison Ford does, I mean, is it the worst Scottish accent? I, I think it might be. That, <laughs> how dare he? He sounds Dutch. I think <laughs> what makes it worse is the fact that Sean Connery is in this movie yeah. and could quite <laughs> easily have corrected it for I've him. I've gone and caught a sniffle. It's, it's obviously meant to be deliberately bad, but yeah, it's like, let's do my dad's accent, but awful. But you it's not a even a Connery. And I am Mickey Mouse. Yeah. That's, I love uh, the use of... Mickey Mouse almost like as foreshadowing to the fact that Disney would own Indiana Jones. I always, because I always, I always thought it was because I, I thought they chose Mickey Mouse because Disney, because the Indiana Jones stunt show and there's like a roller coaster, they are in Disney World. So I always assumed that Disney already owned Indiana Jones. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's a foreshadowing for 10, 20, 30 years later when Disney would buy the whole of Lucasfilm. They've, they've always had a, like a lifelong kind of warm relationship with Disney. Mm. It was going to happen eventually when the elders of Lucasfilm eventually decided, uh, let's just pass this one over. So like uh, the anger and hatred and, and bile directed at Disney, it's like, this this was going to happen, guys. Mm. What, I, what I find amazing is a quick aside that you bring that up, is the anger and bile and hatred thrown at Kathleen Kennedy. I was just about to say. all of these films. Kathleen Kennedy, like, who has been pulling her weight and far more than that since the early 80s, credited over and over again, assistant to Mr. Spielberg, like, you know, cope, like, producing and just eventually... All of a sudden, she's a Disney mistake. Yeah. It's like, what? This lady's been here the whole time. She came with Lucasfilm. You eaten. They left the her the damn is... keys. Like, this is in good hands. And people are like, oh, she's this new terrible thing. That... No. Dude, she was in the Anything Goes dance sequence as one of the dancing girls. <laughs> I like, did she's know that. paid her dues. <laughs> um, but, uh, so, yeah, like, I wanted to do a montage on YouTube of, like, Kathleen Kennedy, Kathleen Kennedy, Kathleen Kennedy, just, like, highlighting her name. <laughs> like, and just, like, putting the, uh, the, the film and the title and just showing what each one is and just, like, having it move. You just go Kathleen Kennedy because if you look at her back catalogue of stuff she's been involved with it is enormous and extensive it's worth noting by the way there are only two people hmm. that top her in terms of uh, box office gross on their yep. producer credit movies Steven, Steven Spielberg, Spielberg and, and Kevin J- Feige Kevin Feige wow, wow. I was going to say what's James great Cameron, is but he she shares she shares back. most of those accolades with Spielberg, with Spielberg that's what's yes. great <laughs> <laughs> that is true Okay, here we go. These are just some of the movies that Kathleen Kennedy took a producer role in. E.T. the Extraterrestrial, 1982. Poltergeist, 1982. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Gremlins. The Goonies. Back to the Future. Young Sherlock Holmes. The Color Purple. The Money Pit. An American Tale. Inner Space. Empire of the Sun. Batteries Not Included. Who Framed Roger Rabbit? The Land Before Time. Back to the Future Part 2. Always. Joe vs. the Volcano. Back to the Future Part 3. Gremlins 2, The New Batch, Arachnophobia, Cape Fear, An American Tale, Five Goes West, Hook, Tiny Toon Adventures, Alive, Jurassic Park, We're Back, A Dinosaur Story, Schindler's List, The Flintstones, Bridges of Madison County, Congo, The Indian in the Cupboard, Balto, Twister, The Lost World, The Sixth Sense, Snow Falling on Cedars, AI Artificial Intelligence, Jurassic Park 3, Signs, Sea Biscuit, War of the Worlds, Munich, the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, Persepolis, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, Ponyo, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Arietti, 
from Up on Poppy Hill, Adventures of Tintin, The Secret of the Unicorn, Warhorse, Lincoln, The Force Awakens, The BFG, Rogue One, The Last Jedi, Solo, The Rise of Skywalker, and a whole bunch of upcoming Lucasfilm-related projects. She didn't suddenly grab the wheel and start steering the Star Wars ship in strange new directions. She's been at the wheel since before most of us were born. Back to the castle where Indy attempts to rescue his father. On some level, it feels like hoping he'll get some respect at last from this man just for showing up. But the moment they meet, as you said earlier, Indy regresses. And, and this how is something reflexive that is. Yeah. Yes, sir. It's like it's almost like he's not in control of it. It's just it's a reflex, like like hammered into him from a really early childhood. And this is something that pretty much everyone can relate to. If you had parents who raised you up to a certain age and you visit them later in life as an adult, it doesn't matter if you're 20 or 30 or 40, like they have a way of sometimes in a positive way, bringing you back to who you were as a kid, sometimes in a negative way, dragging you back to when you were a kid. And sometimes you go kicking and screaming and you're like, I don't want to feel like this around you. Uh, and and sometimes uh, it's it's just it feels like no time has passed, and that's kind of at the core of this story. You've got Indy regressing to his teenage self, angry at his father, and there's all of this shit that they have never really dealt with. And some of the best dramatic moments are very slight, and v- like very few words are really exchanged. But you can put a lot of weight in them. The the uh, the you know the the Jesus Christ dad and then the slap and the, that's for blasphemy. And that following a bunch of of like action and comedy and it's just suddenly a really serious moment. And Indy, rather than getting petulant and 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 bickering with him, just says, "This is an obsession, Dad. I never understood it. Neither did Mom." And then there's that quiet moment of like regret passing between the both of them and you can tell that they've both been wounded it's it gives this weight to it to the film which the others struggle to match brody's this way my diary's in berlin we don't need the diary dad marcus has the map there is more in the diary than just the map all right dad tell me well he who finds the grail must face the final challenge. What final challenge? Three devices of such lethal cunning. Booby traps? Oh, yes. But I found the clues that will safely take us through in the Chronicles of St. Ansel. Well, what are they? Can't you remember? I wrote them down in my diary so that I wouldn't have to remember. Half the German army's on our tail, and you want me to go to Berlin? Into the lion's den? Yes. The only thing that matters is the grail. What about Marcus? Marcus would agree with me. Two selfless martyrs. Jesus Christ. 
That's for blasphemy. The quest for the grail is not archaeology. It's a race against evil. If it is captured by the Nazis, the armies of darkness will march all over the face of the earth. Do you understand me? This is an obsession, Dad. I never understood it. Never. Neither did Mom. Oh, yes, she did. Only too well. Unfortunately, she kept her illness from me. All I could do was mourn her. The, the blimp sequence has a very good bookend to it of when he sits down at the table with him and they're having their drink and he says, you know, you know, we never talked, we never talked, fine. What do you want to talk about now? And he says, well, I can't think of anything. Then all of a sudden Henry Sr. goes from quietly sitting, filling out the grail diary, not letting his son bother him, to scooching a chair up next to him, like kids getting down ready to follow a treasure map to talk to him about Alexandretta and how to get there. That scene with him coming to Indy's level bookends nicely with the seagull scene on the beach of the dad coming out and basically pulling an Indy of, I can get us out of this, and I'm going to try something silly. And throughout the 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 shooting the the dogfight sequence and everything leading up to that they're exchanging bits of respect for each other in like the dad realizing what indy's been doing his whole life and indy realizing what benefit you know all of this research that his dad did actually had to kind of saving their asses right now and i just love how quickly it goes through that kind of the way a john williams score does right of taking you through emotions with very little dialogue it's all the performance and how the scenes are uh, placed and edited together. It's a real testament to how efficient the writing is because, yeah, the scenes, be- any scenes between um, Indy and Henry Jones Sr. are so short. In terms of it's scenes where they are just talking and particularly talking about the childhood and t- talking about how the, uh, their relationship, they are so short. So it goes from um, when Indy first smashes into his room and they're talking at cross purposes, the, um, the 18th century Ming Dynasty. Oh, it breaks the heart. And, like, and <laughs> the, there's such. <laughs> and the head, <laughs> Dad. And the head, Dad. You hit me. I'll never forgive myself. And you, it, he, it's okay. I'm fine. It's like they're not talking on the <laughs> same goodness. wavelength. You get the sense that that's what that's that's what growing up with each other was. Yeah. That they were having these conversations it's slightly like complete, out of key, completely out of, out of key. Out of then you've got the yeah, like as Chris says, like the milkshake scene on um on the on the blimp, like talking like yeah. Uh, Indy just kind of taking this moment to kind of express all these regrets of like, but not in a. I'm really disappointed in you just kind of telling him it's like it was a lonely way to grow up even for you like if you'd been a proper average father like telling him he's wrong it's so short and you, but you get the sense of how long that speech has been building up in him how resolute his idea of their relationship is like you know like we I, I learned you know I learned that I'm less important to you so well that we haven't spoken in years like and it's it's piling years and years of blame on his dad in one short kind of speech and then as you say like straight up to the um the the charlemagne scene like just every, every moment every moment between them where you get a hint of their child of 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 what it was like for indy to grow up of what it was like for henry to, to kind of raise him they're so sure it kind of for me it culminates with when henry believes that um indy has gone over the cliff yes and he's like I, i've lost him I, I, 
never told him anything. I, five minutes. I just wasn't ready, Marcus. Five minutes were enough. I always love that wasn't ready. It's like he has had his whole life and he wasn't ready to explain how he feels about India. I always, I, I, on this viewing, I also wonder, did he feel he wasn't ready to be a father? Because he had all yes. this work. He had all this, this, you know, this, this grail law to kind of um, dissect this, this quest that he's put himself on. And here he was, you know, raising a child. Like, was he not ready for that? Like, and it just builds up to that moment. And again, that that scene, looking down the cliff, it's, it, I think it's what three lines. It's um, five, you know, five minutes would have been enough. That is four sentences to instantly express a lifetime of distraction and regret. And it's and that, just amazing. That ties in that idea of he wasn't ready. He didn't have enough time. Um, that ties in with his lifetime obsession with this object that supposedly grants immortality. Mm. Would have given him all the time he needed. For what? Because all of the relationships that that were supposed to mean anything to him have been uh, damaged or lost as a direct result of him pursuing it. And that's the ultimate irony. And I do wonder if the... Because the relationship that Indy has with Henry feels very and I don't mean this in a bad way but very stereotypical dad relationship mm. to me um, yes. in, in that sense of your you you have this father who and I'm saying this in inverted commas obviously loves his son but he can't demonstrate that mm-hmm. at all and the only way it is acceptable for his son to interact with him is if he meets him in the field of his particular special interest. Like, I'll talk to you if it's about the grail. And that's where yeah. they they have kind of failed to make that connection in that that's the only thing that they can really bond over. It had to be on Henry's terms, and since Indy couldn't meet him on those terms, he couldn't meet him at all. But given that Indiana Jones then creates like this father figure for a pretty sizable generation of young boys they get to see this man who they are looking up to and and having as a father figure for themselves having difficulty with his own father and that kind of multiplies the power of that the the energy that's in that relationship and the the flaws and resolutions that come with it it's 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 amazing to go back and watch these movies now particularly these ones because i had such a rocky time with my own dad and these movies were so important to him to show to me um it similarly my brother and i touched on after watching dr sleep how important the movie the shining was to my father and we don't even know if he really realized it but maybe it was uh, like a catharsis like he, or therapy for him like he latched onto a movie about a father who was an alcoholic and tried to kill his family and maybe it was, you know, a bit of, oh, well, at least I'm not that guy. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's a comfort in it because he has the same issues. And going back to Indiana Jones, you know, it, it, it was hard for me to, to watch this movie to prepare for this one because I love it so much. And I was worried that I was going to be sad going back through the father-son stuff. But it just it's such a joy because it, it makes me think of him. And, and I think, like you said, I think it's intentionally a very stereotypical father-son relationship because if you if you pay attention to the way the script was put together George wanted it to be this movie about Indiana Jones looking for ghosts in a castle 
and that ended up being you can look for ghosts some- in a castle. Yeah, that that ended up being something that was used on the young Indiana Jones, like James mentioned. Um, and also, when he finds Henry Senior, it's in that castle that that story was going to take yeah. place in. Or, and so, it's amazing how much of it they use. And and when you read into it, how all over the place this script was, because this George Lucas, Steven Spielberg team can make such amazing stuff like Raiders in this and can go so off the rails, like with a lot of the stuff in Temple and Crystal Skull that, you know, you see them bring in other writers and other people to do treatments and you listen to the way George and, and Spielberg talk to each other. And like the dad thing with Spielberg. No, yeah, there's this dad relationship in the movie, but that's the grail. It's less interesting, the search for the grail. The MacGuffin is less interesting than the relationship it brings together. Yeah. And it's so cool to see how well, as friends, they play off each other when they're both allowed to contribute. George seems to have a very particular set of talents when it comes to coming up with story ideas, and you have to keep him in a very defined area. He needs a handler. Of his, exactly. Of, of his creative contribution. But I can just, I can almost imagine Stephen being like, okay, George, okay, George, ghosts in a castle, but what if, what if it's a metaphorical ghost in a castle? I'm not sure. Could it be Sebulba's ghost? (laughs) Could it be Sebulba's ghost? Could it be a 12-year-old girl? All right, George, just go over and get in the closet. This is how this, this is how I imagine anyone working with Robert Rodriguez has to be like, stop now, stop. <laughs> Sharing your adventures is an interesting experience. It's not always shared. It's disgraceful. You're old enough to be her her, her grandfather. Oh, Miss Human is the next man. I was the next man. <laughs> ships that pass in the night. You remember the last time we had a quiet drink? Mm-hmm. I had a milkshake. Mm-hmm. What did we talk about? We didn't talk. We never talked. Do I detect a rebuke? A regret. It was just the two of us, Dad. It was a lonely way to grow up for you, too. If you'd been an ordinary average father like the other guy's dads, you'd have understood that. Actually, I was a wonderful father. Did I ever tell you to eat up, go to bed, wash your ears, do your homework? No, I respected your privacy, and I taught you self-reliance. What you taught me was that I was less important to you than people who'd been dead for 500 years in another country, and I learned it so well that we've hardly spoken for 20 years. You left just when you were becoming interesting. Dad, how can you? I'm here now. What do you want to talk about? Hmm? (laughs) I can't think of anything. Then what are you complaining about? (laughs) We have work to do. It's almost the antithesis of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. If you are a Patreon subscriber, you will have heard our scorching appraisal and criticism of Close Encounters. Because in Close Encounters, 
Steve was looking in the other direction. He was like, yeah, yeah, this guy leaves his entire family behind and goes running off for the grail, finds it, flies off in it. Isn't it great? And I, and I was watching it going, no, that's that's a terrible ending. That is, that's horrible. He needs to find the grail, realize he actually wanted to be, like, obviously it's the same message that we get taught all the time, but ultimately obsessing about something that's ephemeral and actually getting it, that's... That's a weird end to a movie, isn't it? Uh, like relative to the, like the, the a classic story of like that. Just obviously, it doesn't have to be the hero's journey every time, and you can do the story where, as it turns out, the family did suck, but um, or, or something along the lines of the the, the thing you were looking like Cocoon, for example. Oh boy. Uh, like it, these these old people sort of just go off and 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 actually leave behind their their old age. But if you go to Spielberg's uh, entry on the Twilight Zone, which we talk about on the uh, Patreon as well, the kick the can one, it's the same bunch of old people who decide, you know what, being old is fine. And it's, yep. it's, it's these these constant reversals of stories, and some of them are stronger than others. Mm, yeah, we should totally talk well, about that though. Like the the hey the weird thing you were chasing this whole time did bring you happiness hey people money that's a good thing to go after that'll fix all your problems (laughs) it's interesting because i always took the cocoon thing oddly to have a darker take when compared directly to the kick the can where the kick the can is accepting your mortality Mm -hmm. but still getting but still getting to live your life and cocoon is accepting your mortality and passing on that that's how i always took cocoon is the the eternal youth thing is actually them they go you know, off into the it, West. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and I and I always felt the same way about Close Encounters a little bit. But the movie's too damn clinical to 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 win, hmm. um, to to win you over that way. In my opinion, it's tricky. But, um, and uh, like it, I said, they're, they're, it, Close Encounters has its fans. Uh, but there are four different indies. I realized while watching this because uh, yes. in, in Raiders, obviously, he's the uh, like this serious archaeologist who's like you know uh, he's actually really driven in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's like I'm gonna get this before the Nazis do. He's really enthusiastic about. It. He's not really happy, but like he's driven. He's on. Like, he has a there's purpose. a momentum to him. In Temple, he's like oh for God's sake, and and he's uh, he's forced into various obligations he doesn't really want to and then once he's there he's like i guess we'll help these people but like it's not really what i want to do and harrison ford seems bored throughout in this one obviously it's much more personal it's dredging up ghosts of his past and he's reconnecting with his father and then in crystal skull he's reconnecting both with uh, the this old flame of his that he's you know not been able to make it work with twice in his life before and finally is able to tie the knot but also connecting with a son he's never even realized he had and we'll talk about that there but that's four different shades of indie and it made me realize that Han Solo gives us four different versions as well. You've got the, you know, I don't do nothing for nobody. It's just me and Chewie, right, Chewie? (laughs) Okay, I'll help them. And then... (laughs) In Empire, it's like, if I don't pay off Jabba the Hutt, I'm a dead man. I've got to get out of here. I'm going to get you out of here, princess. Okay, now, I'm just going to try and pay off Jabba the... I'm a dead man! Uh, He's kind of desperate in Empire. The whole time, he's trying to make his ship work. 
and uh, you know his ship is him and he's constantly being berated by Leia but at the same time they've got to kind of get past themselves in order to actually get together and actually realize that yeah Han does want to stay with the alliance he does want to stay with her but he's like his past is catching up catching up and he's terrified mm. and he's getting berated by Chewie as well can somebody get this walking conscience out of my way <laughs> And then in <laughs> Jedi, he has gone into death and then been rescued from it by Leia and Luke and his friends. And he's realized what's really important is this. And he's just totally in. He's like, okay, so, you know, Rebel Alliance, I am not even thinking about my previous life before. I am now General Han Solo. This is me. And then in Force Awakens, all of this, all of these years have elapsed. And the brightest time in his life we never got to see and it's far behind him and he's trying to do right by it and do right by his his ex-wife and do right by his son and in the end he gives his life to try to repair that and it's just Han Solo is one of my all-time favorite characters as is Indy and I think the versatility across them prevents him from being static, prevents him from just being what the public want all the time, the way that James Bond is consistently reset to zero. Yeah, the character he's playing gets to be serialized a bit. Yeah. Which is which is very cool. Yeah. Okay, so um, the plane sequence and and the, the the no ticket sequence and bird start. We can talk about each individual bit. I, I will say, why would you design a rear gunning seat that can shoot your tail off? It doesn't make any sense. Design it with a little jog that puts the guns slightly up and higher than the the tail. Now, what's great about that is, I wonder, is that. Is that circumstantial because the plane was just designed that way and they thought, oh, this would be clever? Or did they did they make the plane that way like is like a an alternate version of a real plane just to have that scene mm. because the boats the Chris Craft boats that they use in the movie they mm-hmm. actually designed them to be longer than they really were yeah. so for the chopping sequence with the propeller the actors right. could be further away <laughs> so they could use the actual actors instead of the stunt people which I, I found amazing I also assume they designed these boats to explode when uh, pre- presented any pressure on either yep. side by other big <laughs> boats just to Explode. Yes. Just explode. <laughs> the plane, and this has only just occurred to me now, why does it have a gun? That is a passenger blimp. That is like, a, like a, I don't know, if like tr- you know, trains into London like had an escape carriage that this also had a machine gun said, on it. Yeah. It's a Nazi blimp, though. They love it's a Nazi blimp. Yeah, I, think, I think it's in war, wartime, like occupation, it's so it just serves dual purpose. I, I do think, though, you're right, the design on that gun is absolutely appalling. It's got no restriction on how far he can swing it around, so technically speaking, your gunner could turn around and shoot, shoot you in <laughs> Again, design it with a bit of a jog to point the gun up. up. Only then you shoot your own wing. In fact, you, no, well, no like I said, up above shoot the, the blimp. <sighs> Either way, the pr- the plane is somewhat impractical. Yes, and uh, an unfair swap for a car. It is. <laughs> um, also, uh, Alexi Sale here is the uh, Hatay Sultan. And there's actually a really dark undertone to the scene where uh, Donovan says, you know, he's trying to uh, uh, bribe this uh, sultan with uh, you know, to get uh, supplies and um, uh, vehicles. And uh, he says, and this could just be my inference, 
but he says that uh, this gold was donated by some of the finest families in Germany. And the Nazis had already begun um, going through people's houses and uh, detaining people, um, their own people. Yep. And uh, I don't think that Spielberg would go, oh yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I feel like that was intentionally put in there. Yeah, I've never read those as voluntary donations. Yeah. No. Oh. So uh, yeah, that's that's dark and horrible, and so are the Nazis. And they're almost they're more comical in this than they are in uh, Raiders. in Raiders, mm. because there's something really kind of these people really can't get to the Ark. But because Donovan doesn't give a shit about it, he's not a true believer. He's the equivalent of um, Belloc. And so they don't have like Vogel is, I suppose, the closest to like a, a really evil Nazi. But he seems like such a worker day Nazi. Like he's like the taking off the leather glove and vi and slapping you around with it. But he just seems to be like grimly happy to be doing Nazi business, as opposed to Vivil gets a grail and then the Führer will live forever. Possibly. Yeah, no, he's. He's the torture guy. He's the guy that, like, is just sitting around waiting. Oh, God, I don't really care how this goes. Just give me more people to cut up. Come on. <laughs> the fight on the tank at the end, where mm. it's Vogel versus Indy, like, I never quite believe how Vogel is is thoroughly you know, handing Indy his ass like, and, and presenting that much of a challenge. I don't know. I just, well, Indy's never... trying to save people, and Vogel's only trying to hurt. So yeah, all he has to do is get in kidney punches. Yeah. And I do wonder, actually, yeah. if the, the the comedic positioning or slightly comedic positioning of the, the Nazis generally, except for the parade and the book burning, which is quite yeah. terrifying. It's tear-jerking. you've got little things like the... And like those were real Nazi uniforms, by the way, so uh, they, they recovered them from somewhere. Um, but then you have little things like Hitler signing the book and, and thinking that he's there to, to get an autograph rather than um, desperately trying to hide from everybody. That um, scene for me, that always feels like that's the pitch for young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Like, right, how many random people from history can we get we Indy get to, bump to bump into, into yeah. um, but those those little they're almost diminishments and I wonder if it's a, a trade off for the fact that unlike in Raiders where the Nazis get a horrific face melting end um, they don't really get one in this, the, the worst thing that happens ultimately happens to Donovan and as you say he's not a true believer mm. Mm. Fun bit on uh, Donovan's end. There's um, again. This is me, me and my, my mate who uh, with our annual indie fests. Watch it back. There is a moment where, as he's aging, he briefly, very briefly, blinking you miss it, becomes almost the spitting image of Doc Brown. Ooh. Yes, he does. Yes. So whenever we watch it, we're like, "Great Scott!" <laughs> <laughs> and another that thirty, forty in, years to my life. <laughs> that bit in the entirety of. Um, Temple of Doom once they go underground makes me believe that Sam Raimi would make a great Indiana Jones movie someday if they ever needed <laughs> another director nice. um, a quick thing because we got back to the book burning I had this written down because I wanted to wait till we got there um, gotta love Spielberg because you know you you have Raiders of the Lost Ark which has a you know they're chasing after a MacGuffin from you know the, the, the part of the Bible that you know is also the Bible for the Jewish faith, right? And that's Spielberg, right? Yeah. You get to this one, and it's like, okay, I got to make a movie where the MacGuffin now is something that, you know, as far as I'm concerned, Jesus is just a guy, right? So, like, they kind of leave that whole thing aside. So I give him credit for being able to jump into things that he's a firm believer in and more just the story, you know? But I love 
hearing the stories about the Nazis in this one in the scenes where he would bring actors in to play Nazis and he would go, all right, in this scene, you're all going to be Zig Heiling Hitler. I want everyone in the crowd before you act this out to cross your fingers and stick them behind your back with the other hand. Yeah. <laughs> That's and nice. I love that, that he still had that level of fun where, you know what, I'm going to freaking flip off these people as much as I possibly can, you know? And I love that where because he's putting this horrifying imagery, like a display of, you know, rah, rah, look at how great we are. That must kill you as a director, you know, to, to film a scene like that. It, yeah. it reminds me of a lot of the fun... Um, in Jojo Rabbit where the Gestapo are just like the Keystone cops like they're just bumbling fools you know and I I love anytime you can just take the piss even if it's not on screen Mm -hmm. but in the background you had every actor just kind of going nah nope sorry no Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and I love that one thing that this really reiterated for me and it's it's a bit more of a sort of a philosophical thing but the the emphasis on this is how these people b- behave in herds. This is what the crowd reacts like. It is so much easier to direct people in horrendous ways when they are in packs and when they are scared. Yeah. Yep. Also, uh, while Vogel may not be a, uh, a big beefy guy that Indy could trade punches with, again, which Frank, that I'm going to say, would get quite boring. And he does get another one of them in uh, Crystal Skull. And it's not the most entertaining because we've seen him punch a big beefy guy before. I mean, frankly, he should fight uh, a really like wiry short guy. That would, uh, that, that would be different. In fact, he almost does fight that, um, like Ernie Reese Jr. is that uh, uh, guy who leaps down on them in the in the tombs and, and sort of like starts screaming at them and is sort of kind of a capoeira fighter. But like trying to imagine 60-year-old Harrison Ford being able to hold his own up against a martial artist is uh, difficult. He'd just shoot him. Um, but, uh, but there is a philosophical... Uh, villainy to Vogel which actually puts him in opposition with Henry Senior when uh, he's like slapping him with the uh, glove and says you know what does this book tell you and then there's that fantastic wonderful line it tells me that goose stepping morons like yourself should try reading books instead of burning them Everything about what Henry Jones does is, uh, you know, it's about knowledge and the quest for it and the, uh, you know, uh, sort of a stern authoritarian. But at the same time, um, there's a there's a, a whimsy and a sweetness and, and a philosophy uh, to to him when he, you know, does the the bird strike thing. Indy looks at him like he's off his trolley, but he has an almost childlike, almost Don Quixote style um you know, he's an, he's the knight who's, uh, you know, kind of, he has the, the virtue, even though he has, he is a deeply flawed man who has let his family life, you know, go by the wayside in pursuit of this dream of, 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 of chivalrous questing. But Vogel stands for just this horrendous, you know, nihilistic, yeah, we burn everything, um, you know, ca- <laughs> chaos. And like, because that's the thing, at the heart of Nazism is a belief in nothing. That You know, that most Nazis aren't real Nazis. They just want to fuck shit up. Like, if you, what, what we understand as real Nazis, like, even Hitler was not like a true believer in the Aryan Brotherhood, because if he had been, he'd have gone, oh, wait a second, blonde hair, blue eyes, not me, I've got to shoot myself in the head. Most of the time, it's just an excuse to behave like the absolute worst, most evil people in history. Yep. 
And uh, yeah, ultimately, uh, Indy has already you know stood by and let Nazis destroy themselves, and he's punched and shot a whole bunch himself. But there's that moment of you know what you stand for, sir, is destroying knowledge. And that's ultimately what the Nazis are shown to be doing here. And and I love the fact that Con like this was one of Connery's last films. He did a bunch of like nineties thrillers like Rising Sun and um Yep uh, and uh, The Rock. And God, yeah. We are saving The Rock until Sean Connery finally passes away. Because as far as I'm concerned, that is his real last film. He did The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and Avengers, no, not that one, afterwards. But The Rock was his last magnificent film. Avengers, where they dreft him up in a teddy bear costume. That's the point. Yes. Now is the winter of your discontent. It's terrible. It is so At least he was having fun. Yeah. That's even creepier in the air. For some reason, I read the novelization of that film before I saw the film, and there's even more (laughs) teddy bear scenes. It's just weird. Blockbusters sucked. And like people are like, oh, Marvel killed cinema. No. No, they didn't. <laughs> like, oh, my sweet summer child, you were not around for the blockbusters of the late 90s. They fucking no, you were sucked. Not. Even Spielberg was responsible for a lost world or two, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, okay, so... Oh, but the lost world, I'm sorry. It's all right. It's Benny Hill with dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> okay. Dinosaurs are great in the lost world. They do. I mean, the dinosaurs Fine. Anyway, mo- moving uh, uh, swiftly on. Uh, let's let's get to the end and, and, and the trials. Um, which, by the way, have, has anyone seen Onward yet? The Pixar yet, film. No. All three so of these. I, I got to read a review for Onward okay. for my brother because his his voice isn't working, so I had to be his voice for oh, like the last yeah. few weeks for him. But I haven't seen the movie, but I I loved being the reader for the review. It told me everything I needed to know. <laughs> I haven't actually watched that yet. I'd, I'd seen the film before I watched the reviews, but I've been waiting for... Um, see, what I tend to do is, like, we, we, we watch film uh, film reviews after we've seen the film. Yes. Um, because yes. I, I kind of want to go in with my head just totally clear. And mm. uh, I, 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 your brother is pretty persuasive. And sometimes he's pretty good at getting, like, a seed in my mind. And I'm like, I cannot stop fixating on this one thing. So I like so, to... So he sent... He sends me the review to read, and again, I won't tell you anything of the review because I don't want to blow onward if people haven't seen it, mm-hmm. but you, we know from the trailers it's about the kids bringing back their dad with mm-hmm. a spell, but it only brings back his pants, his mm-hmm. lower half. His legs and So feet. because Bob can't speak and it's my voice, he, he did um, just his pants for the review. Nice. Which I think is hilarious. <laughs> okay, but in Onward... All three of these trials are present. There's the um, yes! the, the the like the spinny blady the, pen, the the penitent man will pass. The the, the, the rhythm of this section, the breath of God, is magnificent. Just the only the penitent man will pass, and then you've got it cuts to. Um, oh, by the way, it is a masterstroke shoot. We haven't even talked about the fucking tank. Okay, the tank going over the edge, as you said, is 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 wonderfully punctuated by that dramatic scene, and then Indy coming over and standing with them is just this wonderful bit of comedy that allows you to just breathe through that drama that just happened it's 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 brilliantly balanced and that look and of confusion the entire tank sequence mm. is storyboard only was never in the script it wow. was it was it's magnificently uh, arranged and coordinated and all of those um you know the th- way things that they do with the tank and the ways that they move in and around it are, you know, superbly done. Um, the tank sequence and the motorcycle chase were there because Spielberg felt the film didn't have enough action. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, but the uh, the motorcycle sequence also gives us the jousting, which puts us in. Yeah. Uh, the whole, uh, yeah. This is the, you know, they are the modern day knights, and which is hammered home by the Grail brothers saying, you are strangely dressed oh, for I love a knight. It. But, uh, but yeah, they are effectively the modern day knights. They've not been appointed by anyone apart from the villain himself. But when they get to the um, uh, temple, I think it's like the, the, the Petra in Jordan, the actual uh, the, the place is. Uh, but in this, it's the fictional canyon of the crescent moon. Um, shooting Henry Jones Sr. to give Henry Jr. the imperative to go and get the grail back is a masterstroke of dramatic tension. Because then it becomes like, because without that, it's like, why are you even going to get this arc? You know the Nazis, sorry, <laughs> Freud, uh, why are you even going to get this grail? You know the Nazis will take it. Or why are you going to get this uh, grail for the Nazis? And if it was just, I'll shoot your father if you don't get it, then you've got your standard, oh, Indy's got to do this. But actually shooting him so that Henry Senior is dying puts such a lifeline on this thing. Like, Indy's got to get this done. He's got to get it done fast. And he's got to remember what was in the Grail diary. And that he hasn't, hasn't, has he got it with him? I forget now. He does have the book. He does, yeah, he okay. has it with him. But specifically, and I, it means he has to do it without his father yeah. shouting him hints. Because although Henry uh, Senior is saying the words, yeah. Indy ostensibly can't hear him. And I love the line from Donovan, you know, the only thing that can save him now is the healing power of the grail. You have to ask yourself, what, what do you, you believe? believe? It's yeah. so good. <laughs> he's such a, like, he's a smug prick, but at the same time, um, he's he's got this kind of, you know, you know, I, you know something? You're absolutely right. He's he's almost like Ian McDermott, but more uh, restrained. I am ashamed to admit I had not noticed until my wife pointed out on yesterday's viewing that the gun with which he shoots Sean Connery is a Walther PPK. Walther PPK, 7.65mm, only three men I know oh, use this gun. I believe I have killed two of them. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Love it. <laughs> uh, and, and, yeah, like I said, the, the imperative of this, and the there is a hypnotic element to uh, the breath of God, especially because you've already seen some hapless boob get decapitated by this thing in a way that you didn't exactly see how it happened, but you're like, something's up there. And, you know, it's just the idea of these cobwebs moving and then these, like, blades flying out. It seems like a, a really quite simple trap once you're past it, but it's fucking terrifying up until that point. And the penitent, penitent, only the penitent man will pass. Just the, that, like I say, hypnotic, rhythmic uh, monologue going through there. The breath of God. Only the penitent man will pass. The penitent man will pass. Oh, God. 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 Oh,
I love both Raiders in this movie's way of breaking down like things that like when you know being brought up in in Catholic school and reading the Bible and you know being put through these things all of this stuff in these stories you can never equate kind of the mystical elements to anything real and I love how these movies that aside from the ark Mm. and aside from the grail nothing else mystical happens in these films it's it's literally just the point where they get to the one thing so the breath of God has a physical thing that explains why it's happening it's not Mm. that God is chopping off people's heads there's a buzzsaw coming out of the wall and the next thing is a physical thing and the next thing is a physical thing it's all things that can be explained away because a human Mm. being created them same thing with the staff and the treasure location Yeah, and that ties in with Indy never fully believes in the supernatural at least not by my reading like um, he believes in the faith and the mythology and all that behind it but he never fully believes in the powers the supernatural powers that are behind it so um obviously like you know people would point out you know raiders at the end that kind of shows that yes there but is he a doesn't power look. God, but he doesn't look he has his eyes shut he he only has his own rationale for what could have possibly happened um and you know for all he knows it could have been like a kind of a human-made booby trap of some form in this like the, the moment i love in this is um as you say, it's, it's very mechanical booby traps. It is a buzzsaw that's being being like turned by these really old, you know, wooden cogs, mm. and then like, like a, a crystal kind of crumb- maze. Like a crystal maze. A rather um, harsh crumb- crystal maze. A- I'm coming out. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's then a crumbling floor, which again is a, a, a physical mechanical thing. The leap of faith when he realizes I'm gonna to have to leap, like this is a leap of faith. Mm. And there's a moment where he kind of almost rolls his eyes and grits his teeth, like, I don't believe in this. I don't believe that God will carry me across this canyon. Mm. I have to just do this and just trust that hope that I don't fall to my death. There's a there's a there's a moment where you see it really kind of wrangles him like I I don't believe enough in this, but I'm gonna to have to do it to mm. save my father. They, uh, like I said, in Onward, there is a bit where you have to believe in order to uh, cross a chasm, and it's a. Uh, uh, this is homage. It is not like they're just, they're not just nicking it. It's not a, an accident that all three of these are in the same film. It's it's wonderfully applied, and it works uh, in terms of uh, dramatic uh, um, intentions as well. Um, and the 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 bit with um, where, but in Latin, Jehovah starts with an I. It's almost yes. like when he falls through the floor. And gets back up again. Jehovah, who's been hanging around with him this whole time, like slaps him around the forehead and goes, I? <laughs> the path of God. The path of God. The, path the, of the, God. Um, it's almost a cheat when you look down into the chasm. You're like, there is absolutely nothing there. Uh, but it's, it's, and it's, it's, a, it's a neat trick. But like honestly, the thing that persists now is just... In like Harrison Ford's performance in this bit, like as you say, James, that, that he's not sure he can do this, and faith has to come from a place of uncertainty because if it's blind faith, it's not faith. Yep. Mm. It has to. There has to be a seed of, do I really believe in this? Mm-hmm. There has to be that question, and that it strengthens yeah. the belief. Well- 
when it's knowledge, you know. When it's science, you've you've seen the evidence. So yeah. there's no faith required. With blind faith, you think you know. Yeah. You're dealing with what, as far as you're concerned, is complete truth. Certainty, yeah. Yeah. A moment for me is, is the polar opposite of Rick O'Connell looking at some diagrams on the wall going, OK, now I'm a believer. Like, the, the Indy has to earn that moment of, yes, OK, I'm going to go for this. Like, there's no kind of diagram of like, OK, yep. OK, now I fully believe. Yep, let's go for it. He has to... You can see the conflict. There's no kind of internal monologue. He's not talking to himself. It's entirely done in Harrison Ford's face. It's an amazing moment. And I like how Henry Jones Sr., has the same thing about him. There, there's nothing preachy about his following of this grail lore. Like, he's there for entirely reasons of, of finding this. Like, he wants to do the research and look, and he's following the real, true, existing steps to get there. So I love when Indy says, he, they talk about the three things, so what do we do? And he goes, I have no idea. <laughs> We're going to find out when we get there. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's the first time he's been uncertain about the whole thing, and it's it's just great. And it makes him happy. Yeah. Oh yeah. It kind of also uh, mirrors uh, um, uh, Indy uh, saying, you know, how are you going to get on there? I don't know. I'm making it as up as I go. That that just exactly. sort of sense of that what the Jones family seem to do best is improvisation using what they've learned. The realization he couldn't have done any of this without his son, and vice versa. Like, they couldn't have gotten through the seagull bit or some of the things about the dad, and the dad physically could not have found the grail tablet because the rats would have stopped him from getting there. Yeah, it was a, a team effort. I always thought it was a shame they didn't call back to the, don't know, I'm making this up as I go along. Because in, in this line, in, in both the, the River Phoenix prequel bit and then later outside Castle Brumwell, he says, I don't know, I'll think of something. And I always thought it was a shame they don't call directly back to Raiders like, I don't know, I'm making this up as I go. Like, to kind of show that part of the character. I thought it was a shame that they didn't call back that. And then we meet the final of the three brothers on his long, long vigil, and it's an amazingly slight performance. He does a couple of things. He tries, like, he prays, so you're like, right, this guy's the real deal. And then he tries to engage Indy in swordplay and just falls over because he's just done. He is... Uh, like his his fighting days were centuries ago and he's just not up to it and he tries to pass over to Indy and effectively that same passing the hat thing but this is not Indy's job and um, his delivery it's, it's, it's wonderfully humble isn't it there's no sort of well done you have bested me sir it's, it's just it's very calm and very kind of there's a wisdom to it as well it's, 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 it's reassuring and uh, it feels like it feels inherently good, and there's no, like, there's no deception. He's not like, oh, take whichever grail you want, wink. He's like, <laughs> but be warned, you have to really know what you're doing with this thing. And and I adore the restriction of the grail. I adore the fact that it only works on whoever is guarding it. That what you're effectively doing is not in fact gaining eternal life, you are trading any life you would have had outside those confines for the honour of guarding the grail. You're not actually really getting eternal life at all, you're getting eternal vigilance. And you could parallel that with the fact that effectively by letting it go at the end, Henry and Indy get to go off into their own lives and leave this 
leaving behind at long last. Mm. And I like that uh, the idea of death coming as a peaceful thing. I mean, I know it's yes. not—it's not exactly peaceful because there's rocks falling around all everywhere. But it—it it makes me think of the uh, another third of three brothers, the three brothers in the uh, Deathly Hallows, yeah. where at the end he greets death as an old friend. Humility, yeah. Mm. And, uh, and as I said, because Donovan has been taken out, um, and again. Deeply satisfying ending for a villain. Not quite up there with the uh, the arc, but it's there. Like in terms of <clears throat> Donovan hasn't been, uh, you know, like hot, hounding Indy this whole time. He only uh, gets revealed as definitely the villain halfway through. But he's been so smug and so selfish that his pompousness of you know, surely this is the cup of kings, and I'll be I'll be drinking. My health long after the... It's the same thing about... We keep coming back to about villains who just want to live forever and that, that death scares them more than anything else. Well, it's bad enough that the Nazis want to do what they want to do, mm. but the Nazis want to do what they want to do, but that's the Nazis choosing. We're doing this. Donovan basically says flat out, yeah, you know what? I know all that crap they're doing and they can have it. Yeah. And that's a worse villain. That's that's the, I could do something about this, and I'm not. I'm just going to stand by and look out for number one. <laughs> that sucks. Yeah. And so, yeah, when he when he uh, drinks on the wrong grail and just ages a thousand years suddenly, it's just wonderful. I, 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 I it still, also explodes. Yeah. When, whenever I see a particularly horrible person who now looks terrible, I mutter look, they look like they've drunk from the wrong grail. And I mean horrible on the inside, not just, oh, look at that old person. Like, uh, You've chosen poorly. The delivery on that line is one for the ages. He chose dot 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 poorly. It's so because I I love what you said about him is you know Indy comes in sees this guy mm-hmm. and he accepts that Indy you have bested me like he sees the good in Indy and Indy goes I have to explain something like these jerks that are about to come in here they're not with me you know he doesn't even have to the guy goes I'm gonna let the room take care of them for me <laughs> you know? and I love that he chose. I I really love and thoroughly absorbed, by the way, the reference to the grail being a simple earthenware cup that a carpenter would drink from. And Mm. that's something that really has informed on my interpretation of what Christianity should be. Who are you emulating here and why are you wearing a gold hat? It's not the glory, it's the humility and kindness. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, And uh, interestingly enough, uh, Harrison Ford began the movie business as a carpenter. carpenter. (laughs) (laughs) This is truly the cup of a carpenter and I would know. (laughs) Again, this this humble thing, and the fact that it has to stay in the temple and the seal, and it's not for taking outside, and the the double bind of it, not like you know, the average person who seeks eternal life would see that as a curse, not an honor. It it, it just seems like it's a it's a beautiful balance to that, you know, the, the effectively to keep a wellspring of life bubbling up inside a person forever needs to be balanced. Mm. 
Absolutely. And the fact Otherwise you end up as a Highlander. Well, there is that. But you the don't fact want that. that they are nobody has to commit to staying, but they are also able to release the knight from this vigil that he yeah. is now tired of. Mm. And uh, my my favourite moment comes at the very end, after Indy has tried to save Elsa. Uh, he ends up reaching for the Grail as well. And um, Stephen said uh, in the uh, behind the scenes stuff, and then and then the uh, uh, roles are reversed, and Indy's trying to reach the cup as well because he wants this glory. And I'm like, no, Steve, it's not just for the glory of the Grail. I don't know if Stephen really knew how significant this was. Henry Jones Jr. is desperately trying to get back both the symbol of his father's pride and approval and obsession, like the thing that his father wanted. He's Mm. trying to say, I got it, Dad. And also an artifact that in some ways embodies this long-gone mother. Because even if you don't interpret the grail, the cup, as the feminine, it is the thing that his father threw all of his uh, passion and, and life into and it feels like the mother was left to one side and withered as a result. To, to Henry Jr., the resentment for that just still burns to this moment. And it falls to Henry Sr., a man who his son always felt put everything else in life aside for the grail, including his family, to finally tell Indy himself to let it go. Henry Senior has let it go and he's now telling Indy to let it go. And after spending the whole movie calling him Junior, much to his irritation, he finally calls him Indiana, the name that his son chose for himself in a peaceful, strong, accepting, approving, fatherly way to tell his son it's okay to let go, that they can both return to the real world and carry on with their lives. So through all that symbolism and loaded meaning, though it may have not been intentional at all, this reads as a healthy forgiveness of each other and of themselves. It's such a brilliant moment, and it ties in with, again, something Harrison Ford does with his performance all the way through. We've talked about him looking for approval. He is physically looking for approval throughout the film, like the... um, when they're in the castle Brimwell and he mentioned, you know, Donovan knows that the pages are missing. He looks over at, um, at his dad to say, you know, sorry, I, I took the map out as if for approval, but gets a look of reproach because, oh my God, you, you've ripped up my diary. Um, <laughs> you throughout- I should have mailed it to the Marx brothers. So it's like, <laughs> okay, I, I'm here, dad. I've come to rescue you exactly as you, uh, you wanted. And he's like, you did. You gave that diary to a Nazi, you idiot. So while he's looking for approval, he gets smacked. Mm. Like throughout the um, the motorcycle chase, whenever he like bests a Nazi, he keeps physically looking back uh-huh. at his dad. Uh-huh. I got that dad. one pretty good, didn't I, Dad? Mm. And yes, you, know, you got another Nazi. Well done. 
Look what you did. I can't believe what you did. Yeah, honestly, Henry Jones is intimidated by Indy's lifestyle. People are trying to kill us. Happens to me all the time. They're very different. Wonderful trailer moment, yeah? And who's going to save you, Junior? Junior. I told you! Kills three men in cold blood. Don't call me Junior. Love it, love it. But yeah, but I they're just, Nazis, so it's okay. So by the way, when he leaves those Nazis, he locks them in a burning room, including that woman who's like, Alarm! And, oh, yeah. you know, he, he, they're going to die. They are going to die. And it's like, I'm fine with this. <laughs> this woman reminded me both of Rosa Klebb in From Russia With Love and Frau Farbissina from Austin Powers. Garfambats! Rosa Klebb's the kind of Frau Fabissner. Yeah, she's she's the Rosa Klebb type in Austin Powers. Yes, that's what she's modelled on, yeah. Yeah. And honestly, it feels a little bit like Mustafa is a little bit uh, modelled on um, uh, Kazim in this. Yeah. With the uh, the fez on. Although... There is a wonderful moment for that uh, for the uh, actor who plays Kazim when he's at the Venice dock and he's like he's shown the cruciform sword thing and just said you know we are dedicated to this these are the externalizations of this Grail Knight and we guard this and he's incredibly dignified and he's you know you know it's, you know what do you, why do you seek the Grail his glory or yours and then just leaves them with that philosophical thought. It's that's the opposite of all of the fucking boneheaded, like racial ignorance displayed in uh, Temple of Doom. That's like that is a respectful portrayal of a dedicated man. I love it. He's played by Kavork Malikian, and Ardeth Bay came from there. Two things about um, about the editor and the tank sequence. Mm-hmm. So um, you said the man who edited this film, there was a great quote from him mm-hmm. where he said that the way he learned to edit from the three Indiana Jones films was to edit based on feel instead yeah. of edit clinically. Nice. He said a lot of people teaching film school would could look at some of the things he's done and gone, if you calculate it out, the way you edited that scene is wrong. Like, you held the take a little too long, you did this. He said, but I've edited based on what it told me about the characters and what I had in front of me. And he said, it's two different schools of thought, but he said, this movie in particular, he said that he felt like him and Steven and even George on the editing side, it was all about how the scenes felt and what it evoked in people more than, oh, if it was perfect or if the effect worked perfect. Another crazy thing about the tank scene, I think all of it or nearly all of the stunts are all Harrison Ford because the camera was always up real close on him they said the scene where they drive the tank against the cliff is him hanging there and you know like that was supposed to be two days worth of shooting and the tank scene ended up being eight days and they said Harrison you know would just jump up for it this is actually where the classic stapling the hat to my head thing came from in the making of from Harrison because it Gilbert kept flying said, off yeah he kept saying those scenes are great but I can't use any of them because the damn hat came off <laughs> to the point where it comes off in the falling scene with the tank and that's where they ended up with it blowing back is because he said you know what screw it we're not doing that again nice um the guy making the special effect for the tank falling off the cliff, it was an actual um, full-sized rig for the, the fall that they filmed. They didn't film it where they filmed it, but he said he had two versions of it, one that was aluminum to do the roll and one that was steel because he said that too many scenes like that he's built before, um, they look fake. 
He says, I need it to, like, fall, because, you know, a car isn't going to fall with the same amount of heft and slam and bang. And I just find that really interesting to hear from people designing stuff, because you don't really hear that in making ofs anymore. They go, oh, you know, we just tweaked it a little bit. There's also another good thing with the Seagulls, where they riff on George. I love how many riffs George's friends get on him in these things. Spielberg is saying after they couldn't get the Seagulls to fly, so they had to use fake Seagulls and Doves. Because the real seagulls couldn't be trained. But the Spielberg actually says, he goes, so I turn to them and say, well, why don't we just film it with one of those chroma key lenses so that George could just blue screen the pigeons in afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 like he's done in all his other movies. And I just always find it funny how much they dig at each other. So I suppose that kind of puts the lid on the original Indiana Jones trilogy. And it did uh, end in a really, that this kind of conclusive way and there was such a gap between film three and film four that it, I can understand people of a certain age thinking there were just three indie films and um, honestly I, you know since I, we really didn't have that great a time with Temple it becomes murkier and we'll talk about the um, like pretty much denial that the fourth film exists when we get to the next one. But it does feel disconnected from the others. It does feel more like the way the Star Wars prequels were, were very like disconnected by the distance, a long span of many, many years. Mm. But these three, over the span of, of eight years, equate to at least two all-time classic films and a bunch of bungled mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go, gentlemen, where can people find the work that you're proudest of? Um, we'll start with James. Uh, I run a non-violent game blog, non-violent game of the day, nvgotd.tumblr.com, um, or on Twitter, at nvgotd. And if I may, I am soon to release my first novella. I was hoping you'd mention this. Okay. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Are you uh, um, are you uh, willing to talk about it for a little bit? And just uh, absolutely. I, I, I'll I can briefly talk about it. Um, sure. I, I, this is ridiculous. I'm about to embark on this career as a self published author, and yet I hate marketing myself. I hate promoting myself because I don't want to come up. Join the Alex. club. We've Dude, got jackets. Alex has been doing it for years, and he still. <laughs> struggles to mark himself I'm, I'm almost i'm almost apologetic about my work which i imagine you are as well it's like it's like well it's it's okay i mean read it if you want please i've got a book you don't have to read it i mean for god's sake it just took exactly years to right. write <laughs> fyi folks this show was recorded months ago so james's book is now totally available I'm going to be publishing later this month, um, aiming for the 23rd. That's a little exclusive for you guys, because I haven't actually announced that yet. Aiming for the 23rd of March. The book is called Wandless. It is a novella set in a semi-near future, um, where Harry Potter-style witches and wizards live among us. But unfortunately, unlike Harry Potter, it's not a wonderful tale of children growing up to be wizards. It is about the ordinary people, um, us humans, being intolerant and locking them away. Uh, Wandless, the first book, I say first book because it was meant to be a standalone. I've definitely got a series in this. I apologise. <laughs> okay, that's me again. Again, I'm sorry for writing more books in this I'm series sorry. that you will probably enjoy. <laughs> um, the first book is about a woman who is on the run from the anti-magic security forces, so the, the military 
are pursuing her. She's trying to escape Greater England to find a place of safety. But the powers she has and uh, the devastating consequences when she uses them is not the reason that they are chasing her. You can find out more at wanderlust.co.uk and you can find keep track of my books, um, which, which I will be doing more of, uh, jamesbatchelor.me. And Chris, where can people find the work that you're most proud of? Because I can't stick to just one podcast, I have four. Um, you can find mine by searching The Chippa Made This, that's C-H-I-P-P-A. Um, as Alex said at the beginning there, The Chipman Brothers Tangent, Shooting the Shit with Chippa, The Talkbuster Podcast, and Creating Geeks. I'm incredibly proud of all of these. Um, you can find them, uh, if you can support them all at patreon.com slash the Chippa if you like. And also, um, you can search my YouTube page, which is similarly searchable. There's a PAX panel from PAX East in Boston that I did recently with my brother on being old guys playing video games called Grumpy Old Gamers and a bunch of other stuff over there. And um, it is an honor, as always, to be asked to come on the show. And James, thank you for sharing your Last Crusade discussion with me. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you so much as well. This was lovely. Thank you. And that is all from us this week. Keep an eye out for our show on Jurassic Park, recorded in back in 2015 when The Lost World came out. Years ago. We were still Digital Drift at the time. Oh my god. Oh my god. Uh, if you haven't heard it yet, it is one of our very best. Such enthusiasm. It fits in perfectly with the Spielberg season. We went into all kinds of detail. Uh, interestingly, written by, uh, adapted by David Kep, who wrote Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. The next shows we have lined up include AI and Catch Me If You Can. But there is plenty more of quick reviews of other Spielbergs on our Patreon bonus feed. We've already mentioned uh, the Twilight Zone, the movie, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We've also got the Sugarland Express, 1941, Color Purple, Always, a revisit of Jurassic Park, and Hook. And we're going to try and tackle Schindler's List, Amistad, and Saving Private Ryan. Three deeply serious films. And which we've put out over these past few months. Basically, everything that we haven't managed to do into a, a main show, we're doing in some capacity on our Patreon. Where you will also find 27 minutes of deleted material from this recording in a Patreon-exclusive Cutting Class episode. And that is all from us for now. We will, of course, be back with Indy's much maligned fourth outing. We're both taking it to task and searching for its finer qualities. So that should be a fun challenge. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out.
Once again, the New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you too. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Alex Peregrine, Angus Lee, Benjamin, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Dan Hepner, Daniel Salguero, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Evan Jankowski, Finn Barnicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Joe Gasiga, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joseph Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Bailey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Haskell, Marty Huey, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Trey Contreras, and Tom Painter.
back. Tickets, please. Boss. No ticket. Oh,